The Gospel and Compassion is the sermon title that is in front of you in the bulletin. I want to begin by explaining to you all what the gospel is, and I'm going to begin with a story of something that was reported in the news. It became somewhat of a famous story because of the events that took place after this. In 1964, you guys remember this story? How many of you were even alive? Oh, two hands showed up. A few honest people. In 1964, a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese, now those of you that were alive, anybody even remember this story? Anyone know Kitty Genovese from New York City in the Queens neighborhood? Kitty was walking back to her home in Queens, New York, and a man came up to her and stabbed her. Not a very happy story so far. She screamed loudly, ah, he stabbed me. Lights came on in the buildings around. She was not too far from her own apartment. People looked out their windows, and as they did so, the mugger started backing away. But as he waited for just a moment, he realized nobody was actually coming to help her. And in fact, nobody did. Nobody wanted to put themselves into harm's way. And in fact, nobody even called the police. Later reports after this incident took place documented that over 37 people reported seeing or hearing this event and doing nothing about it. When the man saw that no one was coming to aid her or, or help her, and no police were on their way, he came back to her in the alley and finished the job he started and killed her, eventually taking all $49 that was in her purse, and he got away. When reporters stated, uh, or when reporters started interviewing these 37-some people, this is what made the story so famous and memorable for New York City citizens. One person did not make excuses and honestly just said, I heard her, I saw her, but I just didn't want to get involved. How honest. Do you realize that just about every time we want to help someone, there's a risk of making ourselves vulnerable, especially if somebody is in that kind of trouble? In this situation, all of these 37 people knew, well, I don't want to potentially get stabbed. I don't want to be mugged. This could cause me to suffer, so I will stay safe at home, and I will turn the other way, and I will silence my ears to the screams of the hurting. The good news of the Bible is that God is not like those 37 people. The God of the Bible, from very early on, hears the screams that are crying out for vengeance or salvation or help. It's as early as Genesis chapter 4, the famous story of Cain and Abel, where we hear God telling Cain, your brother's blood is crying out, and I have heard it. Or if we see just a, another book later in the story of Exodus, what is the reason that God gave for why he saved Israel from the Egyptian slavery? Do you remember in chapter 3 of the story of Exodus? The Lord said, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. 
This is the God of the Bible. He sees the afflictions, he hears the cries, and he comes down and gets involved. These people didn't even call the police. I'm assuming because they didn't want to potentially have some sort of association with putting this man in prison, and so therefore, let's just not get involved whatsoever. The God of the Bible doesn't just call the police. He does even more than call the police. He comes down from his high and lofty throne. So imagine the person coming down out of their apartment and helping rescue. This is what he does. He comes down and he rescues Through the book of Hebrews, as we've studied it from chapter 1 to chapter 12, before getting into practical commands, we've heard the gospel of who Jesus is and the fact that he comes down out of heaven and becomes a man. Through Jesus Christ, God comes down and gets involved. In Hebrews chapter 2, more specifically, we see in verse 17, Therefore he, Jesus, was made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and made propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The good news that the Bible brings is that the God of the Bible sees the pain and suffering in this world, even though we were the ones who brought it on ourselves, and he comes down in the form of a man, and he suffers with us. He suffers with us, and he knows what it's like to suffer in every way that we have suffered. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, it's going to say something very similar toward the tail end of chapter 4 in verses 14 and following. Since we have this great high priest passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near. The gospel of Hebrews chapter 1 through 12 is that God, when he heard the cries on earth, came down, got involved, became vulnerable, and did not just risk his life, he gave his life. He knew that by coming down, it wasn't just, well, I might be in a vulnerable situation here. No, it would cost his life, but he still came down. And and now, therefore, because of that, he can help us. He can sympathize with us. He knows what we're going through. Because he got involved, he knows the lure of temptation. That's what the passage says. Any of you tempted? Struggling with temptations? You pray to the one who knows what it's like to be tempted. He got involved and he knows what it's like to be tired, to be hungry, to have all of the physical exhaustion that you could ever possibly feel. He became a man. He knows what it's like to have a physical body and be exhausted and tired and need to sleep and need to eat. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to weep. Even when he doesn't understand the will of the Father, remember the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11? He's he's not understanding, and, and Jesus wept. He gets involved, and it, and it causes him to weep. He, he gets connected relationally and emotionally with people. The God of the Bible gets involved, and he knows what it's like to experience betrayal and rejection and be a part of a dysfunctional family 
and metaphorically and then literally stabbed. Stabbed in the back by his closest friends, even ministry partners, but then literally stabbed in the side with a spear. He got involved and knows what it's like to be single for his entire life. His entire earthly life, he never once got married to a spouse, so no accounts that we see in the Scriptures and only false accounts say that Jesus might have married a woman named Mary. We would reject those as a church. We would say that the Gospels make it clear that Jesus lived and died a life of singleness. So, single friends here in our church service, you pray to the one who knows what it's like to be single while all of his friends and everyone around him, especially Jewish men in their 30s, would have probably been single or married with many children. So there he is, and we even see in the Gospel of John, he's at a wedding. Well in his 30s, know that he gets involved in these ways. And married couples, Jesus knows what it's like to now be married as he is still alive, but then be rejected by his marriage partner again and again and again. Ever been in a relationship or a marriage and feel like you've been rejected? Jesus knows. This is the sort of way that Jesus gets involved with the messiness of our world. And this is what Hebrews 1 through 12 has painted this beautiful picture of. This is the gospel. And this is what I was saying earlier to all of you visitors or any of you that are here and you want to know, what is Christianity about? Why did I come to church today? It's to first and foremost receive the good news that God gets involved in the messes of this world. He knows how to help. He knows what you're going through. This should bring comfort to us. This should bring good news to us. This should bring hope to our world. And this is ultimately what Christianity is about. So before we go on to talk about our involvement with the hurting around us, know that the God of the Bible gets involved in our hurt and our pain. Many people think that really Christianity is just about us doing good to the people around us. And we're going to talk much about that for the rest of this sermon. But before we get into that, understand this picture. The fruit of our serving other people around us in our daily lives is rooted in the gospel of what I just told you, that Jesus has come down from heaven and gave his life for your life, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, and triumphed over the pain and suffering that we all endure. That's the root that then leads to the fruit of us now serving other people. If you mix that up, you sever the root and then you have fake fruit. You have attempts to try and be compassionate and love others, but they'll be self-serving. They'll be hoping other people look at you or to get some sort of attention or to, to appease some sort of guilty conscience or feelings you have. It won't be because you love the person. The only way to serve people and love them where you're actually just loving them because you love them is when all other strings have been thrown away and detached. And the only way they can be thrown away and detached is if the gospel takes root in our heart. And you have been loved so well by Jesus by receiving the gospel. So, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 comes after 1 through 12 
and wonderful reminders of the Jesus that came down. So friend, I encourage all of you, whether you've done this before or you've never done it, see that you are in danger, much more danger than Kitty Genovese in New York City. In that danger that you are in, God Almighty's wrath is going to punish. You're in danger. Sin is in your heart and life. God will punish those who are sinners. You are in danger. See it and cry out. But as you cry out, know and believe that he comes down for those who cry out. We have a God who hears our cries and he gets involved. So cry out to him because he is the one who was stabbed to death by a spear so that you and I would be spared. That's our foundation. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We've been reminded of the root. Now let's look at the fruit that is in step or in line with this gospel. And let's look at how we should be then compassionate to those around us. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 3. Focus all of our attention this morning on just verse 3 and the theme of compassion that flows from it. Verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And here's our text, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. A few comments about this passage, and then I want to give four lessons that we should learn about how to remember others with compassion. So, a few things about this passage. First, notice the flow here from chapter 12, verse 28. Really, verse 27, that kind of comes back to this idea that there is a kingdom, and there's a kingdom in verse 27 that has an unshakable reality, things that cannot be shaken that still remain. And so this was what we looked at a few weeks back. And so there's a kingdom on this earth, and things won't last. But then there's a kingdom that lasts forever. And even when the shaking of the end of the earth comes, these will be the things that last. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving this unshakable kingdom and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So this introduces the idea that for us to worship God with gratitude for the unshakable kingdom that he provides through Jesus Christ, there should be thanksgiving, there should be worship, reverence, awe, for our God is consuming fire, and then he goes right into there. There's no chapter break. He's still writing. He's still speaking. It's potentially a sermon, as we've talked about in the past. And so right from this idea of worship and gratitude, show your worship in this way. Let brotherly love continue. And then that brotherly love should be connected to the love of strangers, and that's hospitality. That's the word you see in verse 2. Do not neglect hospitality, literally, love of strangers. So love of brothers, love of strangers, do not neglect or do not forget. Now notice the, the connection between two and three, do not forget or neglect hospitality, but then remember the prisoners. I want to briefly explain who these prisoners are. The short answer is we don't know for sure because it's pretty broad and there's no other details given here. And there's not 
too many details given anywhere else other than chapter 10, which I think I've referred to about 20 times in this sermon series. So turn to chapter 10 again. In chapter 10, we see that the people that this letter is being written to helped out prisoners. So look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. And this is why I entitled the sermon, The Gospel and Compassion. I think this is what he's asking them to do. Don't forget and continue to do this. Have compassion on those in prison. And then also notice the link between the word mistreat in verse 3 of chapter 13. So back over to chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. And then also those who are mistreated. Who are those people? since you are also in the body. If you go back to chapter 11, you don't maybe have to turn a page, but in chapter 11, you see the same word, mistreat, in this long list of people who have been suffering in this. For what more should I say in verse 32? For time would fail for me to go on and on about all these different people who have suffered. Verse 33, they conquered kingdoms, they stopped the mouth of lions. And then 35, women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, we're now in verse 36 of chapter 11. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and then there's that word, mistreated. If we take chapter 10 and chapter 11 and we see the connections between the imprisonments and the mistreatment and the compassion for those in prison, it seems to make the most sense to just say these prisoners are people who are in prison for their faith in Jesus Christ. We can't know that for sure, but it just makes the most sense with the context that happened prior to that. So we are commanded then to remember, or at least these people were, to remember people who have suffered for sticking up for what's good and what's right. And I think that that would then be for us. We should then remember the people who are brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering for their faith. We need to remember them. We need to put ourselves in their shoes, as we're going to think about in just a moment. But I think what we need to do is ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does this look like practically for us to remember people in these circumstances? That's who they were back then, How can we do that now? So here's four lessons. This will be the structure for the rest of our time. Four lessons about remembering. Lesson number one, remembering means coming down and getting involved. Remembering means coming down and getting involved. The help that we are to offer and that they're to offer here is not waiting around sort of help. This remembering the prisoners does not mean sit back and wait for the prisoners to come to you and then, oh, you can help them. It means you got to get up, literally, go somewhere and help them in prison. To remember them and care for them would be to be similar to what Gina was saying, that if people don't send money to the prison... If they don't send aid to the prison, then they won't have the basic necessities of their life. They won't have toothpaste, they won't have peanut butter, they won't have whatever. That's modern day. Well, it was even more extreme in this day. 
they would not have food. They would not have clothing. If we do not go and visit them in this first century context, the Christians, if the Christians don't visit the prisoners, they die by starving to death. So the remembering is more than just, well, let's just keep them in our thoughts and prayers. It first involves coming down from our non-prison state and getting involved in theirs, and that means initiative. And that initiative makes you vulnerable. It puts you at risk. Did you see what happened in chapter 10, verse 34, when they remembered the prisoners in these ways? Chapter 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and it seems as if because of that, they were then identifying themselves with the prisoners who are Christians, and so they still accepted the plundering of their property, and they did that joyfully. How in the world did they do that? Because they knew they had a better and abiding possession. These earthly possessions meant nothing. So, member of Embassy Church, Christian, are you willing to get involved? Are you willing to come down out of whatever spot you're in and get down into the mess of other people's lives. It takes commitment, it takes initiative, and if you just sit around saying, well, I'll just wait for the opportunity to come to me, then you're not ready to get involved. We don't like messy things that take commitment. This is just anti-our culture as a culture. Why do people in our culture not want to get married anymore? And just continue dating forever or live together without marriage? Well, because it's messy. It takes commitment. It takes getting involved with someone and staying involved. Well, how about we just have all the benefits of marriage, but then when things are getting too messy, I will be uninvolved and I leave. That's the non-committal culture that we live in. You see it everywhere. People attend church all the time. They never become member. They, they, they never get accountability. They never submit themselves to a church because it's safe. The church might hurt me. It's risky. Who knows if I put myself under the authority of a pastor or elder? Well, what if he abuses that authority? I will stay detached. I will not get involved. Non-committal. I'll just come and attend on Sunday morning and then I'll head out. Well, and then there's people that join churches, but then they don't actually get involved with people. You know, you might sign the, the dotted line, I'm a member of the church, and I've signed the covenant, and I'm going to be a part of this. I give my money and the plate, and I attend. But are you involved? Are you, are you willing to get into the lives of the people around you? Because that's messy. Ah, you really want that mess. Consider the cost, friends. These are the sort of things that when we look at our culture and the non-committal nature of it, this is going to fly in the face of the normal air you breathe. So ask yourself, are you up for this? Because, I mean, you can keep coming here, but you're going to keep hearing this over and over again from the Scriptures that this is what it looks like to get involved in people's lives. And our love and care for each other in the church as members should start filling up one another in such a way that it starts spilling out to our community. So, first thing, 
is remembering means coming down and getting involved. Second lesson we need to learn about compassion and remembering is it means caring for practical needs. And I've kind of already alluded to this, but let's just stay for a moment on this thought. Not just thinking about or praying for someone. Do you think in verse 3, remember those who are in prison, knowing the context of prison in the first century, knowing that people would just starve to death, meant, hey, you're in our thoughts and prayers. Do you think that's what he's really thinking here? As if you yourself were in prison, that that's all they would want. I think they'd probably want food. I think they'd probably want to keep living and encouragement and visits and some sort of, hey, we're with you, communication from the church that they were a part of. And doesn't James make this quite plain in James chapter 2? Those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you might remember James chapter 2. What is real faith? Well, real faith is certainly not telling somebody, hey, I see your needs. Go, go in peace. I wish you well. What good is that faith without deeds? Without deeds that show, no, I wish you well and I'm coming with you. It's funny, though, that recently in, in, in our culture today, we've seen that there's actually been a debate about this. Have, have any of you been privy to this or aware that there's these debates that when these terrible tragedies have been happening, Christians in particular have been offering their thoughts and prayers. Non-Christians have been saying, hey, we need more than thoughts and prayers. These people need more than thoughts and prayers. Quit your thoughts and prayers. We don't need that. And now there's these debates, like, we need more than that. And there's actually a sense to which the Bible says that thoughts and prayers obviously should be a part of our normal Christian life. But to remember means more than thoughts and prayers. Maybe it should say something like this, you're in my thoughts and prayers and you're on my to-do list and my calendar. How about that for a little statement? I will make you a priority. One suggestion for you all, practically. Here's practical application. What's one thing you could do to remember those in prison today? Like every day, 2016, how can you remember those in prison for their faith? Because there are people that are in these situations. Either you individually or through your community group or something like that, do action packs from the Voice of the Martyrs ministry. So if you want to write something down, persecution, dot o-r-g is a website persecution dot o-r-g and it's a ministry called voice of the martyrs and that's its website and under the different things i'm sure if you even just want to google this google search action packs voice of the martyrs i did that earlier this week it came right up as the first hit so this is i think pretty easy for us to figure out in our technologically savvy world you can remember those who are being persecuted and hurting and collectively as your family or your community group fill action packs similar to what people do at Christmas time with those shoe boxes. If you know those shoe box kind of things and they send them over to kids that don't have toys. Well, you can send essential things that people don't have like blankets, clothes, different, and they have a whole list and you get this bag and it's maybe about yay big, and it's a vacuumed bag. I've done this before with a community group. We did like a hundred some, I don't know. We did a bunch, okay? And, and we sent these action packs. It was a wonderful way for us to pray for and tangibly remember those who are around the world that are suffering because of their faith. There's a practical thing that you could do this week, 
order some action bags for your community group or your individual family. What a great way to teach your kids how to remember those who are hurting for their faith. So let's not just remember with our thoughts and our prayers. Let's take action to put these people on our to-do lists and on our calendar and say, yeah, I want to fill an action pack. I want to send basic needs that people are struggling with because they're being persecuted for their faith. Third lesson about remembering. Remembering means to put yourself in someone else's shoes. This comes quite plainly from this passage when he says, remember those in prison. In, in what way? What way should I remember? As though you yourself were in prison with them. There's this identifying with those who are suffering and saying, I'm going to think of myself as if, what would it be like if I were in their shoes? Those that are being mistreated. Since you yourself also have a body and suffer, there's different debates on how this is understood. Is it like, since you yourself are a part of the body of Christ, that's been the older interpretation I think most of what I've read and studied is that since you also have a physical body and you also suffer in this world, so you know what it's like to suffer. We all have bodies. We all feel bumps and bruises and pains. Think about what it's like to physically suffer and then now have compassion on those who are suffering for the faith. Either way, both sides of this verse is telling you, identify yourself with those who are hurting. I think... This means the empathy and compassion we need. We need to fulfill this means all of us need to retrain our minds the way we think in general before we get more specifically to helping those in this way. And this is what I mean by this. You live in a world that thinks first and foremost about the individual over the community or the corporate group. That needs to change to fit Bible thinking. You know that Romans 12, that we need to have the minds transformed, the renewing of our minds? This is one of the renewing of your minds things. The world has shifted. Now, this is not true everywhere around the world. Other places are community-based communities and nations. But the United States of America and the Western world of Europe and the U.S., this is where all of us live, we think individual first and we think community second. And for much of biblical history and for much of the world, this has not been the case. And what you need to start doing is start seeing yourself as a member of a community before you see yourself as an individual. That's like before we even get to the actual application of seeing these people as prisoners and you yourself in prison. You need to so identify themselves first, then identify yourself with them in prison. Now, the reason I belabor this point is because it comes up several different times throughout the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a good cross-reference for what I'm pointing to here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about how the whole church is a body of Christ and each member is a different part of the body. So, some of us are like metaphorical hands and some of us are like metaphorical mouths and eyes and feet. And we can't say, well, I don't need you, hand. You know, I'll just go without one hand for a while, and I'll be okay. And hands don't just function apart from the body separately. If you see a hand that's just separate and detached from the body and walking around on its own, 
then you're watching The Addams Family. It's strange, it's weird, it's, it's comical or it's creepy, you know, all of those things. Like, it's, it's not real life. Real life is that the body is fully attached, not detached. And it's part of a unit. And that's the point in chapter 12. But notice this one verse. This is chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 26. If one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If the hand hurts, the rest of the body cares. If the foot gets bumped into, ah, stub my toe, we don't look down at the toe and say, man, you're kind of clumsy, toe. That sucks to be you. Hmm. No, our mind, our eyes, our hands, they all empathize and say, you're a part of me. I care about you. If you don't function well, that affects the rest of us. So we start empathizing. Ah, Toe, I love you. Get better. Let me massage you. Let me put bandages on you. This is what the body does. If one part suffers, all of us suffer together. If one part is honored, all rejoice together. Do you see the point here? The church is a collective corporate body that is one. And he's telling them, because that's true, When you see them in prison, that's you in prison. It flows beautifully from this New Testament teaching about the church being a body and a unit. Let me show you one more passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that makes this very same point. In Ephesians chapter 5, we think at first that we're going to get this teaching on marriage and like how marriage works in the Bible, and we do. But then he turns and spins the teaching and says, I'm actually not talking about marriage at all. Watch this. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let me just keep reading and then we'll explain this. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. See what happened there? He's talking about husbands and wives, and then all of a sudden he says, no, no, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church. So here's the point he makes, though. Two individuals become one unit when they get married. That's the reference he just quoted in Genesis. The nature of marriage is that two individual people become one, and they're no longer two anymore. So her body, literally her physical body, is your physical body, and you're one. And therefore, all that she has and owns and is, is you. You are now one. And therefore, you should never look at your spouse and say, that's your problem, that's your issue. I don't need to deal with that. No, 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 husband, that is your issue. That is your problem. It's your wife's problem, and since you are one, that is your problem. And vice versa for the husband and his problems. Wife, that's your problem. You know, I talk to premarital counseling. You know, people are about to get married, and so you do some counseling to say, look, this is what marriage is like. It's not terrible, 
It's wonderful. It's great. Here's some things to think through it well, biblically. And when you do premarital counseling, one of the things you talk about is money. So very practically speaking, you say, hey, uh, you guys talked about money before? You're going to have one bank account or you're going to have two different bank accounts? Are you going to embody the idea that you're now one or that you're separate? We would advise you to say, look, we're one, so now we have one bank account and your money is my money. And on top of that, we talk about debt and say, now, do you have debt and does she have debt? And how are you going to think through the debt? Well, your debt is now together your debt. So her debt, that's your debt now. And that's that part of like, oh, man, this marriage thing. Yeah. But that's the picture here. That's the picture that everything that she is is yours and vice versa. This came home to me when I found out that my wife had a degenerative disc in her lower back and because of the back pain that she would have from an injury she had in college, that really most of the rest of her life, unless medical advances get a whole lot better, she's going to have back pain. Just doing normal everyday things like picking up children and doing grocery shopping and etc. And for quite a while, I, I saw that I would look at her back pain as like, man, she, that's kind of her pain. And then one day this dawned on me, that's my back pain. Now, my back feels fine, but I'm like looking at her and I'm, I'm seeing, and I'm like, I need to start living and serving her as if what would I want somebody to do if I was in pain? How can I help around the house more? How can I help with the children more? Because that pain must be excruciating. And even though I'm not personally feeling it, I need to realize that it's my back pain too and we're in this together. That's the picture in marriage here. A husband loves his own flesh well enough. Friends, we're good at loving our own flesh. We take care of ourselves. If we're hungry, I know when to go get some food. If I'm thirsty, I know when to get something to drink. If I want to go do this, then I fulfill those needs of mine. We're supposed to see our spouse in the same exact way. And Paul says this is the same thing that's true of the church. Are you starting to see why it makes sense for him to say in chapter 13, verse 3, see those people in prison and see yourself as you yourself are in prison with them. See the mistreatment that they're feeling and realize, yeah, that's your mistreatment as well. This takes, I think, a whole reset of how you think all together. It would be great if the Holy Spirit just comes down on some of you and just boom, but my guess is it's going to take days and weeks and months and years for you to kind of stop thinking that you're an individual first. So therefore, get yourself in some sort of discipleship relationship, make a commitment to a local church, and be accountable that we need to see ourselves in each other's shoes in a part of a family. Last and final lesson We've said that remembering means coming down and getting involved. It means caring for practical needs. It means putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Lastly, the most important lesson of all, remembering will only happen when you see that Jesus became a prisoner for you because he came down, he got involved, he put himself in your shoes, and he helped practically. You see that? Jesus did all of these things. Remember Jesus. And here's the, the reality of it. To the degree, the degree to which you see Jesus remembering you 
To the degree you see him giving his life and getting involved with your problems will be to the degree that you will get involved with those that are crying out around us, whether in this church or in the community. Because to the degree that which you receive the amazing love of Jesus and the way that that fills your heart will then be the fuel and the capacity that you will have to give out to others. So if you receive Jesus very little, your compassion for others will probably be pretty little. If you want to cross-reference passage that makes this quite plain, it's in Luke chapter 7, and Jesus says the reason why this woman is crying and falling down on her face with tears and is just giving everything she has at my feet, and he looks over at these religious leaders who are kind of upset about this whole scene, and he tells them, it is because she has been forgiven much. And you see, if you've been forgiven much, then you will love much. The solution to our problem is love. We need to love these people more. Love the brothers, that's the first thing. Continue loving the brothers, chapter 13, verse 1. And then love the strangers. There's a need for love. How are you going to love them? Love them in prison by visiting them. And loving them more than you love yourself and see yourself in their shoes. See, that that requires love. But have you ever tried to just muster up love? Like, okay, let me try and love someone. It just doesn't work. This is why you must receive love, and as that love fills you, you explode with love for others. So to the degree to which you see God in Christ loving you will be the degree to which our church and you as an individual will love those around us. So remind yourself as we conclude with this picture. Prisoners, do you realize that the the story of the Bible is telling you, essentially you're in prison. You are in prison and you're in death row prison, sentenced to death, and you're just awaiting your execution. That's the situation Remember what I said earlier? You're in danger. That's the danger you're in. But God Almighty in His mercy and compassion and His love and His grace, He doesn't just unlock the prison gates and say, you're free. He comes into the prison cell with you and He says, I'm taking your place. Now go free. The punishment must be paid for We can't just open the prison gate and just let you go. Then God would be unjust. The story of the Bible is that God's justice remains because the punishment still is paid, and it's paid because Jesus comes into the prison cell himself, and he takes your place and sets you free. Remember those in prison, including Jesus, that he took on the imprisonment that we felt or that we should have deserved. And think specifically Can you remember the story? The night Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. He took bread and cup. He had a meal and he said, this meal is going to help you remember what I'm about to do for you. This bread is going to represent my body and this cup is going to represent my blood. And I want you to remember it until I return. And right after that, Jesus is betrayed by one of the men sitting at that table. 
He then is praying in a garden, and what happens to Jesus? He's thrown in prison. Literally, Jesus was thrown in prison. Did you know that Jesus was taken captive, put shackles around, beaten and mocked, and spent a night in jail? Not because he did anything wrong, just because he was Jesus. And because he was doing something for you. So when we remember those in prison, remember that Jesus was in prison first. And he did that to save us from the imprisonment and the sentence of death that's hanging over us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for Jesus Christ's coming down and identifying himself with us. He's with us. He cares about us. He knows. These are glorious truths, and we want to thank you for them. We want our hearts to be more full than they already are now because of them. So God, we want to ask. We want to cry. Cry out. Save us. Save us from our self-centeredness. Save us from our individualism. We cry, God, save us from our imprisonment of our consumerism and our love of money more than we love others. Hear our cry and deliver us in the same way that you miraculously and forever delivered us from our sins on a cross. Deliver us now in the present day from these awful tendencies, dispositions, preferences, and attitudes. God, give us a heart that beats like yours and loves like you do. And help each one of us that are struggling with all of this to first and foremost receive the amazing love that you've offered by going to jail and prison for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we sing this next song, we're going to remain seated and the ushers will pass the